podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a different kind of episode, one produced in collaboration with an organization called Songwriting with Soldiers. Here's Mary Judd, a co-founder, to explain more about their mission. We are a nonprofit organization, and we hold weekend retreats and online events for members of the military community, veterans, active duty, military families, significant others, partners, those who serve the military. And what we do is we use collaborative songwriting to build creativity, connections, and strengths. Creativity helps expand people's idea of what's possible. We believe that building connections creates community, often among people who wouldn't otherwise connect. And we believe that by building strengths of the who are we kind of strengths, that we are helping to build people's awareness of what's right with them, what's uh, powerful, and helps them build especially post-traumatic growth. I don't know anyone personally who doesn't like music. I don't know anyone who doesn't have a favorite song. It's just so taken for granted, I think, as far as the real power of what music can do for us. To spark hope in somebody who's seen horror, who's ready to end it, that's massive. Songwriters who work with Songwriting with Soldiers and its partner program, PATH, listen to the soldiers and translate their experience into a song in a very short period of time. You have about three hours to write a song. Then perform it that night live in front of the whole group. The song cannot be their song. It's with, with the veteran, with the spouse, with the kid. They can't have an agenda. They have to be writing their story. These songs are capturing stories that we would n- otherwise not hear. For today's episode, I interviewed a veteran named Jeremy Welch. I'm Jeremy Welch. I'm a 20-year veteran of the United States Army. Did 20 years, two months, and 29 days. You don't really know what you're getting into. It's kind of like getting married or maybe having kids. It's when I volunteered. It was in... January of 2000, Bill Clinton was president. We didn't have any wars going on. Well, that changed really quickly. So I did interrogations. I did source operations like informant networks. Deployed two times, once to Iraq and one out to Afghanistan. I, I know that I protected my brothers and sisters in arms. I know that we've, we've stopped some bad things from happening. But along the way, I became more aware and, and I became to, to understand the plight that the people in Iraq and the people in Afghanistan and even the people in Bosnia where I deployed as well, where we see them as, well, they're, they're doing these things that we think are bad. They are bad, you know, but the reasoning is very, very elementary in a lot of ways. It's, I have to feed my family. My family's not safe unless I don't have a job other than this. And when you break it down to that basic fundamental human need you know, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need to survive. We need food, shelter, water. Boy, I would do anything to get that for my family. 
well, would you transport this explosive device in a car across a couple of state lines? Well, yeah, if it would mean my family's safe and they could eat. So when you think of it like that, and then you, you're talking to somebody who's just a farmer or just a businessman who lost a job and the war's happening and they've got to do what they can to survive and, and thrive with their family, you know, you've caught them and you, you're trying to inter- interrogate them as to why and what's the plan. And they don't always know the big plan, you know, and they're just doing maybe what you or I would do to in the same situation. I got a call and I had to go to the hospital um, and they said they had two people. They had um, they were injured and they were trying to storm the gate of our base. The fear is and the, the protocol is you you take out the threat because there were a lot of car bombs going on. So they would drive through the middle. A car bomb would go off, which would defeat our defenses. And then other cars or vehicles would come in behind and infiltrate the base. So let's say you're rolling down a. Um, a road with with a convoy and there's three to five trucks in your convoy and you're rolling down and an IED, an improvised explosive device, detonates and blows up the front vehicle. So everybody stops because we don't know if that's the first one of seven or, you know, it's just one, but you stop. And the, the instinct would be to get out and let's pull security, let's assess the damage or maybe even to back up. But that's not what the battle drill that says to do. That's not what the Army trains you to do. The Army trains you to start checking your fives and 25s. Don't do anything until you check the ground around you. Is there something you can see? Is there danger? Is there, you know, five meters out, 25 meters out? And you start looking for other danger. Um, and that's a battle drill you do that's against your natural instinct to maybe run or retreat or drive through it. Um, you have this battle drill that's that's really beaten into you over training via repetition. You just do it over and over and over and over again. And so when people say, this is your rules of engagement, if someone comes up and approaches the the gate at a high rate of speed, you need to eliminate that threat because if they get here, they're going to have a bomb. It's going to at least blow up the gate. People are going to come through the gate. And at that point, we really are fairly vulnerable. Everyone in there has a weapon, but there's people eating dinner. There's people at the gym. There's people that are sleeping. There's people that are in offices doing work. And they're not ready for a, a, a gunfight. When I was in Afghanistan and I saw video from, we started putting up video cameras all around the base for like security to kind of catch footage of what would happen. And exactly what those soldiers who shot those men in Iraq exactly what they feared. I saw it on video recorded over and over again of people ramming us, even, even just like a side, not even the gate, just a side of a barrier around a base. It blows it up, creates an opening and just fighters come in. There's people with weapons and gun, like everything. You don't know what the attack, the secondary attack is going to be. Is it someone driving through the gate? Is it lobbing rockets into the base to confuse? Is it people on foot that are going to come after? You don't know. So they eliminated the threat and they waited and nothing happened. And, you know, in those moments while we're waiting for the secondary action from the enemy, the second wave of attack never came. So we go out, we assess the damage. We realize there are injured, injured people, bullet wounds to their bodies, um, their heads. I I remember their heads are wrapped up just from, I think, just from wrecking the truck. Once, once, you know, you get shot, the truck wrecks, it rolls over. So there's a lot of just, uh, you know, cuts and bruises and things like that on them. But um, it's one of them was pretty serious. One, one gentleman was, was hit pretty bad with some bullets. Um, so he's, he's pretty riddled and um, shaken up and bleeding and, and 
So we have all all these factors going on, and um, and the only thing separating the two gentlemen was like a a sheet you would pull, you know, just like a little barrier, you know, a little uh, like a shower curtain kind of you'd pull between them. So he can hear what I'm asking the other gentleman, you know, and then that guy can hear, you know, what I subsequently asked the other guy. So it's not as, you know, in the movies they have, there's, there's the perfect lighting and the person is sweaty and they got a bag on their head and they pull it off and, you know, it looks all fantastic and put together and you can, you know, yeah, I would, I would, I would do this to that, to that terrorist. I would treat him like this and I would give him the hard, you know, the hard questions, or maybe I would hit him. Maybe I would do whatever it took to get the answers. Well, we need to figure out what they, what were they doing? Why were they doing that? It was a part of a greater plan. So that's kind of my job, right? So I send them in, they send me in and, um, they want me to talk to these two gentlemen and, um, man, they're, they're not really coherent. They got bandages. There's blood everywhere. There's doctors that are talking to them and nurses. And I've talked to the doctors, talk about what drugs are on, how long they've been in here, you know, and, and give it a few hours. And then I, you know, they medically clear them to at least answer some questions, right? One of the things you do um, to make sure that they're not lying is you collect the information and then you repeat it back to them You and you ask them to verify it. Or you may leave out one small piece of the story and then ask them to re-verify and a complicated piece normally. And if they mess it up, you know, maybe they're lying. So I go in and I talk to them and it turns out that it's a mistake. These two gentlemen were in a vehicle with some family members, women and children actually. Um, and they were coming to the base because they had a medical emergency with one of their children. The women and children inside the truck actually died and the men survived. And they were just trying to get medical attention for their family. They were coming to the gate because the, the kids were not breathing, I think is what I, if I recall correctly. And so it was urgent. So they were going fast. They weren't going to hit the gate, but they were approaching so fast. It alerted the guards. The guards did their job. But in that type of situation, it's just this, this tragedy happened. And it was born out of rules that were meant to protect, you know, everyone. And it, it, it just went wrong. That was a difficult night. When the realization hit me, anger came up. And that was probably a derivative of being sad and feeling guilty. I was just mad that I was now involved. I, I was mad that they called me. On top of everything, let's interrogate these people, right? And I'm the tool for that. And man, it just was like, ugh. Could you not have asked them, you know these questions before and got some sense of, holy cow, this was absolutely a tragedy and not an attack. That's a part of the sacrifice. Like you're going to, it's not just time. It really is. It affects you. It takes, you leave a piece of yourself where you go. Um, and when you do stuff like that, it affects you. It changes you. It changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you see others. Those type of situations happen in war. That's that's war. And it just, it never is as clean and easy to make decisions as you think it is going to be. It is very devastating to do the right thing and still have it turn out poorly. showing weakness or signs of struggle is not good, especially when you're in a job where you need to keep a clearance. Security clearance to do my job was, was paramount. You lose your clearance, you lose your job, you lose your livelihood, everything. 
So you can't show a chink in the armor. You can't show weakness. You can't say, man, I'm struggling with the fact that I just had to interrogate people that were innocent. I struggle with addiction, struggle with alcohol a lot because that's the one medication in the army you can do without question. You can't, you can't do marijuana. You can't do illicit drugs, of course. Um, but you can sure drink. And that, you know, it's, it's a big part of the culture. I just got down. Everything was weighing down on me and I became suicidal. It went from depression and like, I'm upset and man, it's just a crap day or a crap week or a crap month or a crap year or just a crappy deployment to, man, I'm a crappy person and it'd probably be best if I wasn't here. My family can do, they're going to get tons of money from life insurance. My kids won't have their dad, but they'll find somebody else. My wife deserves to be happy. We could all move on and be better for this, right? You know, and you're trying to convince yourself of this. And I was just on an emotional roller coaster. And thinking about suicide or hurting yourself is very different from like literally having a plan. And I was at a plan stage. I had several, um, you know, knives. I would cut, I would cut my wrists. I would take a bunch of pills. I would find a gun and shoot myself. I have a gun, but I was overseas at the time. I didn't have a gun to, um, I was training. I wasn't at war, so I didn't have a gun with me, but I was like, I could do that. I could wreck a car. But what if I don't die all the way? What if I, you know, well, I got to make it real permanent. And I found myself consumed for about a week, week and a half of those thoughts every day, all day. I mean, just talking to people and I'm zoned out. I'm not engaged. I'm not present at work. I'm not present in my relationships um, with my kids, with my wife, with my friends. I'm going through scenarios of like, how would they react if I wasn't here right now? You know, and you and I hit rock bottom. I was just like, I'm going to do it. I think our culture, I think, you know, we, we call on men, you know, in particular, but women too, to be strong, especially people in the military. We call on us to be, to be strong and, and to really take anything they can throw at us. But the misnomer comes with, and it doesn't affect them, right? Yeah, yeah, because we're strong. Yes, and I'm mighty and I've had training and I'm the exceptional 1% of the population. Yes, that's right. It doesn't affect me. That's the misnomer. That's the lie that we all kind of believe and perpetuate by silence. You should be affected by it. Psychopaths, sociopaths are not affected by morally corrupt things they do. They don't identify with that. We're not sociopaths. We, we do feel bad about things that we do that are wrong or that are in that gray area. Boy, that still makes me feel bad, right? We have to acknowledge that this kind of life and what we've been called to do and volunteered to do, um, it does have an effect. And we need to be strong enough and brave enough to say it does have an effect. I need to dig into that, be honest about it, and it's going to be okay, and we've got each other's backs. If I, if I kill myself, it's all over anyway. But what if, whew, big if, but what if, what if my thoughts about the world are that screwed up? I'm a pretty smart guy, but what if I'm wrong? What if I really have been, I've had these blinders on and the, you know, earplugs in and I really can't hear the world for what it's really trying to say and, and, and do for me. And I have these distorted core beliefs about people, about the world. What if that's true? I got to a point of, I have nothing else to lose. Like I'm, I'm going to lose, I'm going to, I'm going to lose my life. And so I, I, throw, I threw a grenade in the middle of my job. I said, hey, guys and girls. And it was literally as I was being named, like the pinnacle of my career, I was being named this, um, the senior advisor to the commander. It was very prestigious and exactly where I wanted to be. But I said, I am not okay. 
And that may cost me that. I don't want it to, but it may, but I can't, I'm not okay. And for once, I've got to be honest about it and say I'm not okay. That scenario of asking for help and not being abandoned and not being shunned and not being ridiculed, but actually being supported absolutely restored my faith in humans, in humankind. Like it just did. I thought, I've got this nailed. People are going to be jerks. They're going to think less of me. They're going to talk behind my back and at the water cooler when I'm gone. And and maybe they did. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you, the, the overwhelming support I got from people that I never thought would be supportive, it restored my faith in humanity. It really changed the way that I see the world. It really changed all that distortion and made it very clear that, you know, I am, I am, you know, I am lovable. I am worth something. I do have a purpose here. People do want me to be here. They do believe in me. They do have my back. Holy cow, they really do. They didn't just say that. I went to inpatient. I volunteered. I said, I need, I need to unplug. I need to go and talk about this. I need some help. for the song written in response to Jeremy's story. My name is Maya Sharp. I'm a singer-songwriter. I have been recording my own albums for years, and I write for other artists as well. And I've been writing for an organization called Songwriting with Soldiers for about four years. My buddy Darden Smith, who is one of the co-founders, he gave me a call seemingly out of the blue and asked if I wanted to be a part of this thing and he told me what the process was and it scared scared the crap out of me (laughs) so i said yes (laughs) you know they can share whatever they want to share and it's our job to just listen hard and to carve that into a song just bringing music into the room creates this kind of alternate plane where maybe people feel safer to open up to somebody that they just met Some of the veterans that I've worked with have said that um, it was more frightening uh, to come home and try to figure out how to to reassimilate into home life than it was to be out there on the battlefield, you know, with the bullets flying and the, the bomb 20 feet in front of them that they have to walk toward <laughs> to figure out how to defuse it. Just, I mean, stuff that would just scare the hell out of us. You know, they're trained to go out and handle the gunfire and figure out how to defuse the bomb. They're not trained for how to come home. How do you see what they've seen and then come home and stand around you know, a barbecue talking to your neighbor about the lawn. Like, what? how do you do that? I can't remember the question she asked me, but I just started talking. And then I got onto this kind of tangent about equipment in the Army and um, how you get issued some things. So you would get issued um, a poncho. And when you're done with that unit and you move on to another unit, let's say you move from Kansas to Georgia, you would leave that poncho with Kansas, go to Georgia, and you would get another poncho. You've used this equipment, it's used, you give it back, somebody gets it as brand new and they use it again. He spoke like a writer. 
everything that he was telling me about his story like already had a rhythm to it. He was hearing the phrasing, he was hearing the rhymes, he was feeding the lines. I'm pretty sure your feet aren't the first to fill these boots, which is the first line of the chorus. I'm pretty sure that just came out of his face exactly like that, word for word. You think you're the first one to wear combat boots and have to lace them up like that and shine them up? You think you're the first one that shined them up and went to formation to get inspected and on the way scuffed them and then got your butt reamed by the drill sergeant? You think you're the first? When you're done with your service, sometimes you return the boots and then somebody else wears those boots. And I, I think I said, or maybe he said, I forget exactly, like, you mean they literally walk in your shoes? <laughs> like, that is the title of our song. Your feet aren't the, aren't the first to fill these boots. Also, you're not the first one to feel this way and you're definitely not alone and you are not the last one. I've also walked a mile after service. So when you're done and you need somebody to help you there, I've walked a mile in the other metaphorical boots. He wanted to write a song about what's next, how can he help others, and really how, like, how can he start his like next level of service, which is passing on what he's learned to other people who he knows really, really needs to hear it. I just love it because it's such a reminder. If I get down, if I get stumbled, because just because you've you've overcome a struggle doesn't mean you're not gonna struggle with it again. I still need to know that I was trying to go alone, but I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. Understand that. Do not get in that mindset of you're alone and that you can't overcome this and that you you can't speak up or there will be consequences or you will be abandoned if you're honest. God forbid you're honest, there will be consequences. That's garbage. That's those are old lies for old lives. And I don't I don't have time for that anymore. You know, so many songs, it looks like you're singing them out to other people, but really they're a little a little knock on your own head. You know, they're a little reminder not to forget this. My favorite part of playing a song that I've written at a songwriting with soldiers retreat. At the end of the song, everybody hugs him and high fives him and tells him what an awesome song it is. And it's fucking beautiful. I love that so much. Lesson was, you can say, I'm not good today. I'm struggling with this. And people will hear you and people will love on you and they're not gonna abandon you. They see me having a tough day and I'm honest about it. Like, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm great. No, I don't say I'm great. I say, man, I'm struggling. This is tough. I just got back from deployment and the odd thing is I miss it. It was horrible, but I miss it. This is These Boots, written by Jeremy Welch and Maya Sharp. The dirt and the dust, the mud and the rain You may know some they've carried through the joy and the pain Tough enough to take a beating just like you And when you stop to shine them up 
They can take that too Your feet aren't the first to fill these boots And they won't be the last There's comfort in the truth You can ask the younger me who couldn't see While he was trying to go alone He was not the only one to walk a mile or even on these boots There for the coffee, there for the wine For you like they were for me when they were mine With you in your home and when you're miles away Somebody's gonna hear you when you say what you gotta say Your feet aren't the first to fill these boots And they won't be the last There's comfort in the truth You can ask the younger me who couldn't see While he was trying to go alone That he was not the only one to walk a mile or even on these boots, these boots. It's a medicine you might not want to take. I know it's easier to tell yourself old lies. But friend, if you can learn from my mistake, Sooner than I did, you'll realize Your feet aren't the first to fill these boots And they won't be the last There's comfort in the truth You can ask the younger me who couldn't see While he was trying to go alone That he was not the only one to walk a mile or even on these boots, these boots, these boots, these boots. That was These Boots by Jeremy Welch and Maya Sharp, performed by Maya Sharp. Special thanks to all the good folks at Songwriting With for helping me put this episode together. If you want to learn more about Songwriting With or support their excellent work, go to songwritingwithsoldiers.org. The next episode features a short story by Keith Rossen and a song written in response by Anshe Duvacot. Please subscribe so you don't miss it, and rate and review if you don't mind. If you want to support Songwriter and our artists, make sure to grab a premium subscription on Apple Podcasts. Songwriter is a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, and you can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, make sure to check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks, as always, to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.